Hey everybody, this is uh, the next War on the Rocks podcast, and I have here three interesting guests. We're going to talk about everything from the supposedly impending attack on Syria, to government secrecy, to whether or not Twitter is actually important when it comes to national security research and journalism, um, and everything in between, which is a lot. So I have here three guests. We got David Gartenstein-Ross, Senior Fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, Mark Stout, the Director of the Global Security Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University, and Eli Lake, a Senior National Security Correspondent at the Daily Beast. And we're here at the lovely Jefferson Hotel Cabinet Room Bar, where we normally do our podcast, at least here in D.C. And uh, welcome to my guests. I just want to well, let's go around and say what we're all what we're all drinking first. Eli, how about you? I'm having Bushmills on the rocks, even though it's uh, August. Okay. <laughs> Jameson's on the rocks, David. Well, I'm Mark, and I'm having a Leffa Blonde because I'm a bit of a Belgophile. All right. And that is the only time Belgophile is going to be mentioned in this podcast recording, I'm guessing. Um, Seems probable. Yeah. So first, I'd like to talk about the one subject that everyone is talking about today, and that is Miley Cyrus. I'm kidding. Uh, Syria. So Assad used chemical weapons uh, against the civilian population in Syria late last week, killing as many as hundreds. And uh, after... He has already crossed the red line once before and supposedly used chemical weapons once before. He's crossed it again, flouted the line, and the president seems to be inclined to launch some sort of military response. Uh, what does this tell us about broader uh, approach that this administration has to foreign policy intervention? To be, why don't you get started? I know you have some thoughts on this. Uh, well, I think that, that one thing we could say about this administration is it's an administration that is very, very good about public imaging. Um, Obama is, you know, probably the, the certainly the consummate campaigner of our generation. Uh, one of the uh, most gifted orators as a president, up there with uh, Reagan and Clinton, uh, from recent memory. Uh, and I, I think it's an administration that's very focused on public image. Uh, to me, uh, we were ta- we, we mentioned you know, just before coming on here. Is there such a thing as an as the Obama doctrine? I don't think there is per se, but I think that that the administration is intensely focused on what its image is going to be with respect to international affairs. To me, there's not a lot of thought put into some of the moves that are made. Um, a year ago, when the red line was drawn, I think that, that A, it was conceptualized as tough talk, and B, not a great deal of thought went into what do you do if the Syrian regime crosses that red line. Uh, and further, um, it's something that ultimately boxes us in, in terms of the effect that it has on our foreign policy. Uh, at this point, I think it's inevitable that we are going to go to war with Syria. And I understand that we use the term military intervention, uh, but it's not a military intervention. When you bomb a country that hasn't attacked you, it is going to war with that country. Now, one could think that that's right or think that that's wrong. Uh, but to me, when I look at Syria, we do have national interests there. The national interests are in zero. Um, the national interests are on both sides of that conflict, uh, including, A, you know, the Assad regime's uh, relationship with Iran and Hezbollah, <coughs> And on the other side, you know, the Al-Qaeda-aligned uh, organizations that are on the rebel side. Uh, and, you know, what we're boxed into doing at this point is, uh, you know, bombing the Syrian regime. Uh, I'm skeptical as to whether it's in our national interest, uh, but I think it flows from previous statements that were made that commit us to a certain course of action. Certain, some un- unintentional courses of action. I mean, I, I think the important thing about your remarks is that the administration certainly didn't expect to get here. It's almost as like they said, here's this red line, 
don't use chemical weapons, and as long as you don't, we're probably not going to do anything. But then they did. So the question is, what, what motive would the Syrian regime have to cross this line? It, it didn't seem like it needed to use chemical weapons to kill more Syrian people. It was using bombs and bullets and artillery just fine. So what, what, what does this give the Syrian regime that it didn't give them before? Well, I have a couple of theories, or let me call them hypotheses rather than theories. Uh, one hypothesis is that, it is, um, is that Iran played a great role in this. Iran is a huge supporter of the Syrian regime, as we know. Um, they exercise a degree of control, and they, like Syria, are very interested in what happens when a red line is crossed. Uh, to that extent, um, what my hypothesis, again, like if you look at public open source information, there's not a whole lot to support this, uh, but it, I think it makes as much sense as anything else, is that Iranian prodding played a role because there was a very clear red line. I don't think it's any coincidence that basically it was the anniversary of the red line on which the chemical weapons attack occurred. And um, I think Iran wants to know, okay, a red line is crossed. What exactly is the U.S. going to do? Uh, there are other reasons as well, strategic reasons within the country. But to me, the Iran hypothesis is one that at least deserves consideration. Well, I think one could... This is Mark Stark. This Mark, is Mark. Stark. yeah. I think one could imagine an, an, an alternate hypothesis, and I'm blissfully unencumbered by facts on this. Uh, but, it, but there had been previous allegations that were plausible, though never rose to this level of proof, of the use of uh, chemical weapons, uh, number one. And, and number two, while this is not personally a critique that I would make of the Obama, and, and there had been no response to those right. alleged violations, right, of the, of the red line. And number two, and though this is not a critique that I personally would make of the Obama administration, one might imagine that some people, um, particularly if they had a sort of a, a psychological vesting uh, in this, uh, might look at the Obama administration as being um, fairly weak and disinclined to get into a dust-up. I mean, Obama has made a big deal um, about, uh, you know, bringing the war in Iraq to a close and bringing the war in Afghanistan to a close. So if you take those two data points with, well, they sort of kind of claimed that we'd used chemical weapons already and nothing seemed to happen, I can imagine more of a situation possibly where either they were consciously testing how far can we go, or they actually blundered into what the Obama administration woke up and decided was no kidding at Redline. Uh, Debating, and I, I, I agree with that. I mean, I think that, that one necessary aspect of this decision is that they thought they wouldn't pay a price. And I, I absolutely agree that they did not think they would pay a price. And one other thing we can look at here is Egypt. You know, if you look at Egypt, you had way more people slaughtered in a single day than the Assad regime slaughtered. You know, just, just a, a little bit day. before. In a single day. Yeah. And, you know, not only did Egypt not... Um, you know, cross the red line of the administration. The administration's response was to cancel a military exercise. Woohoo! <laughs> uh, you know, it's it's not exactly like they, they didn't exactly bring the thunder down on the Egyptian regime. So I would look at those two as linked in terms of the perception that there just isn't a price to pay for that kind of mass. Well, you have you have to ask yourself. I think when you're in that position of responsibility at the presidential level, and this is sort of an unpopular way of looking at it, but this is how they're forced to look at it. Is what's worse? totally alienating uh, one of our closer military allies in the Middle East by cutting off aid more dramatically, or they kill a few hundred people in one day and hopefully we can talk them out of doing it again and we maintain the relationship. Uh, defeating, and I, th I think that you can suspend aid. Uh, I mean, there's a difference between cutting off and suspending aid. We've already paid it out for 2013. We, we, no. For most of it. Not, no? There's about 500 million we haven't. There's some unobligated stuff that's been paused. You should read 
Josh Rogan in the Daily Beast. I try to, but sometimes Eli I don't. Yeah, this is Eli. Um, my view on this, can I make a joke? No. All right. Please, Please do. Think it's good. Isn't there some way we can blame the Israel lobby and the neoconservatives? <laughs> <laughs> oh, how life was so much simpler when uh, there was right when there was when there was a clear villain in all of this. I think it proves that um, as reluctant a sheriff to borrow the phrase of Richard Haas, uh, Obama is uh, America is still the sheriff, and when something horrific like this happens, it's not just the American political class or the Washington, D.C. political class. It's the region. It's the world that looks for American leadership in action. That's just the way it is. And unless we want to be clear and say, you know what, we used to be a great power in the 20th century, but let's, you know, we're not going to be a great power anymore, then these kinds of decisions will be foisted on American presidents for the foreseeable future. Even though I would also agree that, from my perspective, all courses of action at this point are, are rife with peril. There are no certainties, and there are no really good options. And I don't believe people on either side of this debate who say it's a slam dunk, you have to do this, and they minimize um, the consequences. Um, just one, what is the Iranian response going to be? That's one thing to think about. Um, will they launch more terrorist attacks? Do they have the ability to launch more terrorist attacks? Are we better at defending against Iranian terrorist attacks? How much of a handle do we have on their... But what if they use a conventional means? What if they decide to, to, to pull up Saddam Hussein and decide to fire on Israel? What if they decide to fire on another American ally? What if they decide to make things very difficult for our friends in the United Arab Emirates? Or fire on American bases in Afghanistan, or which fire are very close to the absolutely. Iranian border. Or right, so there's that. Yeah. Second issue one has to think about. So you're going to send tomahawks from cruise missiles or ships at sea. What if you hit a Russian military advisor? I mean, Russian nationals have died in Middle Eastern wars before. They've also died, you know, the U.S. has been responsible in proxy wars like Afghanistan for the death of many Russians. But we're in a moment right now where I feel that, you know, Vladimir Putin is sowing his oats. The Russians are certainly a country that would not beyond what might be called direct action. Um, you know, so you have to think about what if the, the Russians seem totally committed to the Assad regime. There's a second issue, though, and this is about inaction. If you are just in the Middle East right now, and you look around, you say, you know what, Russia and Iran are better allies to have than the United States. And America is not that ferocious an enemy at the end of the day, unless you're uh, Osama who, bin Laden. But who in the Middle East is going to think that besides Hezbollah, Iran? What I'm saying is that the narrative, the facts as they are, if you're, you know, like... Or better general, at being an ally, I Right, suppose. or... Like if you're General Kayani uh -huh. in Pakistan, you look and say, all right, there were some protests in Tahrir Square, and this country totally dumped Mubarak in the name of democracy. Uh, Bashar Assad gasses hundreds of people in one day, going against all international convention, and Russia and Iran are still standing tall with him. Now, I'm not saying that that's the only calculus, because there are other things that you have to consider if you're Pakistan. All these countries have histories and so forth. But it's something to consider, that at this point, you know, other allies and other countries in the Middle East are probably looking at the United States in general and the Obama administration. They're saying, you know, not a great friend and not a ferocious enemy. I mean, Pakistan has been such an important ally that losing them would be devastating to the United States. Well, we've half <laughs> lost them already, dude. Exactly. David said that very tongue-in-cheek. Tongue-in-cheek. <laughs> so, so good. Exactly. 
Well, I, I, I'd like to ask the group a question before we pivot to another topic. Um, and that is... You've By the way, I have an Obama doctrine. All right, what's the I Obama doctrine? Here's my pithy Obama doctrine. All right. Talk like a comparative religion professor, act like a Blackwater executive. <laughs> that is the Obama doctrine. So, <laughs> so talk like a liberal internationalist, act like a realist. Yeah, no, no. Talk, no, no. talk like a comparative religion professor. Mm -hmm. Show empathy for, you know, the rising tide of Islam. Right. You know, and then send in SEAL Team 6. And, okay. Uh, do well, a lot of plausibly deniables. Well, is is this actually? I think there's a very strong case to be made for that. Actually, I think that is that is that's how he approaches things. Well, I think is the is there actually a larger doctrine? Is there a larger strategy, and particularly towards the Middle East? Do you think there is a larger policy, U.S. policy towards the Middle East, or are we talking about uh, what I like to call tactical pragmatism versus strategic realism? We don't. It doesn't seem to me that we have any any strategic. The United States is acting very Israeli, tactically. Um, in the sense that the Israelis are like masters of like this not credible denial. So you're like, did Mossad forces have anything to do with killing Imad Mubnia? And then the answer would be something like, I don't know, you tell me. <laughs> but if you're driving a Ford Panera with a license plate alpha, you know what I mean? It's like they'll, 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 they'll give a sort of ambiguous answer. But the point is, is that the U.S. clearly has done, and this gets us into our next topic, an enormous amount of secret war in Yemen and Somalia and Pakistan that are unacknowledged for the most part. In fact, only acknowledged to Congress in Yemen and Somalia last year. Like it was only they even there's a very broad, vague statement that they said. Um, but it's a serious part of U.S. policy in a lot of ways, and it's this lighter footprint. And I think that there is a kind of push, at least in the national security bureaucracy, to expand this approach, and it benefits an image-obsessed White House, and that, by the way, all White Houses are image-obsessed, so let's let's be real, it's not just Obama, everyone is. But it, it benefits them that they don't necessarily have to talk about it or claim direct responsibility for what is inevitably, um, you know, what you know the left sometimes calls that, dirty wars. I, this is Mark. I, don't, I, I mean, I, I think that's true as far as it goes, but I don't think that necessarily amounts to a strategy. Yeah. Uh, that's a question of ways. It's a tactic. Yeah. yeah. Agreed. Okay. okay. Um, and and I, 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 you know, agree with everything you said there, but I must say that I still don't get uh, a big picture sense of broadly, what is the administration trying to accomplish in the Middle East? I think President Obama in 2009 came out, and I could start to imagine the beginnings of, of, of such a thing. He was sort of laying the groundwork, you know, with his, his trip to Egypt and his speech there. And I don't see, that seems to have fizzled, right. and I don't see what, if anything that's replacing it beyond, as Ryan says, you know, tactical pragmatism, right. where case-by-case approaches to problems. Okay, David, no, I, I agree with, Al, uh, with, with Eli about part of the strategy. Um, I, I do think it amounts to a strategy. Um, what and what what it can be called is is no boots on the ground, light footprint. Um, this has this has some benefits and also costs. Clearly. I think, for example, Gregory Johnson's work on the cost of the drone program in Yemen is is, is excellent. Um, I think there's a second side to it which didn't emerge until 2011, and that was that that the administration really bought into the idea that the Arab Spring was absolutely in U.S. interests. I mean, we know that based upon reporting that took place about the decision to go to war in Libya, where Obama said, you know, this is where uh, we ally our values uh, with our national interests. And, there, and one of the reasons that the Libya war took place was explicitly to speed up the Arab Spring. And to be on the right side of history. Right. Both, both of those are, are seen as co-terminous. And also at the time, in 2011, it was 
very much thought by most experts, myself not included, uh, that uh, the Arab Spring was devastating, absolutely devastating to al-Qaeda. Um, I think that when we assess Obama's legacy, uh, all of the legacy of, of the, what we're talking about in terms of the Middle East will be viewed in light of the fight against al-Qaeda, number one. And number two, I think when we look back at the Libya war, in my view, we'll see a lot of second-order consequences that ended up making the fight much more difficult in places like Mali, uh, in places like Egypt. And we can see flow of arms into Egypt. We can see Egyptians training in Mohammed Jamal's camps in Libya. Uh, and in my view, also Syria uh, ended up being uh, affected uh, by the decision to go to war in Libya. So it's going to be a very interesting to look back at it. And in my view, uh, the calculation that was used... Look, there's lots of reasons one could support the Arab Spring. I'm not saying that these uprisings are bad. There's a lot of good things about overthrowing dictators. But in terms of this specific calculation... All be for that. Right. But in terms of the specific calculation of what it did to al-Qaeda, I think they got it very, very wrong. And so you have these two things that are not only at cross-purposes, but you have this kind of light footprint strategy that in some cases exacerbates the problem, in some cases um, ends up... uh, combating the problem effectively, and speeding things up with second-order consequences that the administration didn't anticipate. All right, we're going to go to Eli, then we're going to shift topics okay. real quick. If I can just add to what David said, as I see it, there was also a, a fundamental uh, misinterpretation, I think, of political Islam. And that is that yeah. there was a view that you could separate the ultras, or the radicals, from the more mainstream Muslim Brotherhood movement that the Muslim Brotherhood wanted to participate in politics and ultimately could be corralled into playing by the rules of democratic politics. I think what we saw in the brief experiment of Morsi's presidency is that the Muslim Brotherhood was not interested in playing by those rules. At least that was the opinion of the Egyptian military. And that there needs to be, in some ways, a reassessment of America's relationship with not the religion of Islam, but political Islam, and that while there are important distinctions between Al-Qaeda Salafists versus the Muslim Brotherhood parties that want to participate in politics, and I'm not just diminishing those, that they they both are not necessarily uh, good for American interests in the region. And I think that that is a fundamental disagreement. All right, Mark, I know, no, I, I know since you want to pivot, I'll just say maybe we can take this as a teaser for a for a future podcast, I think that's flat wrong. But okay. I, I say that respectfully. Well, so yeah, maybe yeah. sometime in the end. That's a much longer discussion. And we are, and we are <laughs> four people who all have studied political Islam in some depth right. sitting around a table, so there's a big temptation to just dive into that's that topic. Not but we're going to resist. We're going to resist it, and we are going to we are going to have this as a future podcast. Uh, but right. what I would like to talk about, Eli just, I think, earlier was segueing into something really important, and that is government secrecy. And it is something that is getting talked a lot about these days for obvious reasons, but it's being talked about through the prism of Snowden and how did he get his security clearance and how is he accessing servers and manning and what his sentence is and if he deserved to get longer, which I wrote about, or if he deserved to get shorter, which which other people which other people. You think Manning should get longer? I did, but I don't want to okay. I don't want to dwell on that. All right. Uh, anyone could read about that in National Interest magazine. Um, but I, I don't want to focus on the specific sort of tactical issues. I want to focus on the larger issue of government secrecy and not whether leaking or whistleblowing, whatever you want to call it, is right or wrong. Uh, I wouldn't call what Snowden or Manning did whistleblowing, but uh, whether or not the government has a secrecy problem. And not because of the leaks, but 
uh, apart from them? Does the government keep too many secrets? Is too much of our foreign policy secret? Is too much what America does in the world secret? And uh, let's start with David. Yes. Okay. Yes, it is. Um, and <clears throat> I would distinguish... And what, just, just to interrupt, we have a really interesting group of guests to talk about this here because we have David who works at a think tank and also does some government consulting. We have Mark who used to work for the CIA. And we have Eli, who's a journalist. So this is a really diverse covers panel of people. Tries to. Tries to work for the CIA. When, when Co- I covers the CIA. Covers the CIA. But yeah. anyway, so, so David, sorry, sorry to interrupt. So I think we have a fundamental difference between where we are now and where we were during the Cold War. Um, during the Cold War, uh, it was fairly, relatively easy to understand the U.S.-Soviet relationship. There were questions that weren't clear. You know, what was the Soviet relationship with the various communist movements in Europe or Latin America? Uh, but we had a fairly good understanding in the open source of what the U.S.-Soviet relationship is. Now we have basically a shadow war. And government secrecy uh, is designed to preserve two things. And I agree with preserving these two things. You know, sources and methods of analysis uh, and collection of data. Uh, I think we absolutely should preserve those because um, if you know, our enemies know how we collect, then they will adapt their methods. But uh, in terms of, of the actual underlying sources of information, one of the problems that we have is rather than declassifying and putting a lot of documents out there in the public, there's a very selective declassification. Most information is filtered out to the media through leaks as opposed to declassification of documents. And the problem, and there's a lot of problems with that. Most current information is, goes that way. Yes, current and, and often officially sanctioned leaks. There's very right. robust processes for declassifying things, but that's historical stuff, which, as a historian, I think is very important, but right. it's different. So just a question. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, we're talking. About, there's a 25 year rule on right. declassification, which I think is very much a for, for just secret, and even longer for top secret. Right. And so the problem is, you know, number one, uh, it's basically made our open source analysis of Al Qaeda and other terrorist groups into the equivalent of astrology. And you know, I say this as someone who does open source analysis of these groups, but if you look at the claims that are being made about the state of Al-Qaeda, you know, whether it's centralized or decentralized, whether it's strong or weak, you have these very definitive claims from two different sides. Uh, people are very certain, and at the end of the day, we, just, we actually don't know the answer. We have only a small amount of data. And a great example of this is West Point's uh, Combating Terrorism Center, the report on, um, on uh, the Abbottabad documents, 17 documents, which, with all due respect to CTC, an institution that has done some very good work, is one of the worst reports I have read. See, that's the first, first time, I have my own opinions on that, that's the first time I've ever heard someone say that publicly. Why is that? Because it it, it absolutely... Worked on by a very well-regarded scholar. Absolutely. Hood. Yes, and it absolutely over-interprets every single data point it has. You have 17 oh. documents... And based on the 17 documents, it reaches definitive of conclusions. Gazillions. Right. You have basically the size of, of a very of small library, of, of, of a, not even a very small, a mid sized library. Yeah. Uh, you had so many documents. It, look, if I were to take 17 of your emails, Ryan, at random, or did someone selectively leak to me and say, well, these are Ryan's relationships based upon 17 emails, then I would almost certainly, if the person leaked documents that were meant to support a narrative, get you absolutely wrong. But, I mean, the, the, the report is one that makes the right arguments at the outset that you shouldn't read too much into 17 documents and then throws all caution to the wind. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, have a, I have an issue with that, and, but, but that's representative of a lot of what happens in the public sphere. 
because we have so little information. So people overinterpret the data that they have or simply deny that data. In addition to making, to, to really limiting the impact that open source analysts have, another impact is to enhance the propensity for conspiracy theories. Because when you're entirely reliant upon government leaks, you know, the notion the government lies, why should we ever trust them, looms very large. There's no reason that we haven't declassified hundreds or thousands of Abbottabad documents. Everyone knows how we got those documents. It would be so valuable for us to have a better sense of what Al-Qaeda was at the time. And not only does everybody know how we got those documents, but the adversary knows that we have them, and thus presumably has accommodated to the extent they A, can, and B, care their operations, their whatever, to that fact. Well, and and as someone that's worked for the government uh, as well, the incentives to classify information that's coming in are just so high. There are really no... You know, there, there's something called originator authority, and so the person that gets the information... I, I don't even think it's question... So it's Mark again. I don't even think it's per se a question for incentives to classify. It's just what happens. Uh, in fact, if anything, it would be for for most people on the ground who are actually doing this kind of work, whether we're talking, you know, literally in the field in Afghanistan or back here at the Pentagon or CIA headquarters or whatever, the actual choice to not classify something would be extraordinarily difficult. Yes. Like, yes. this is just sort of what happens, right, if the things are classified. And that's, uh, yeah. Uh, I, I want to take, I, I mean, I agree with everything that David said. Um, uh, I, 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 I wish I didn't, but I do. Um, let me take sort of a broader historical perspective here. Look, um, the fact of the matter is that the United States government, um, and I imagine most governments, um, are producing ever larger, just mind-boggling numbers of secrets, but um, in the intelligence realm, elsewhere as well, but in the intelligence realm. Um, but in some sense, this is a result of sort of the, the, the development of the world. If you look back to the 19th century when intelligence agencies were first created, they were very small, they produced very few secrets, Um, because the targets that they were looking at were almost exclusively governments, which were themselves small and which had very little information. As time went on into the 20th century, governments got bigger, they produced more information, and thus the agencies spying on them generated more secrets. There was literally more information to be had, and now we're in an an era where intelligence agencies are not only focusing on governments, but they're also focusing on non-governmental organizations and even individuals at a time when the infosphere is exploding, so of course there are going to be more secrets collected, more, more information collected in secret ways that, 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 that needs protecting. To, to my mind, um, there are a couple of particular problems. I'm not worried about the number of secrets out there. I, I completely agree with um, David's point. I think also there's a tendency to over-classify things that I think is actually potentially a security issue. Um, so, for instance, I need to take a hypothetical example that's ridiculous, but hopefully will illuminate the point. If you make your acquisition of printer paper, the, you know, the paper trail associated with buying paper for your printers, if you make all that top secret, well, then you, the people who stock the printers and um, have to have top secret clearances. But that means they also have authorized access to all the stuff that really does deserve to be top secret, and that's a security issue. And my other concern is actually down at the far other end, where all of this stuff that is actually unclassified, the government has invented more and more ways of keeping it from being released. So you get um, things like sensitive but unclassified and limited official use and for official only use only and law enforcement sensitive and, and I think literally 20 or 30 others that I can't think of at this point. 
Um, all for, below secret. All no, all below confidential. All actually legally speaking, not classified at all. But nonetheless, you can't give it to the public, or you'll get in trouble. Uh, and that seems to be a, a serious problem as well. Well, Eli is someone that professionally gets secrets from people that have them. Well, uh, you know, my I'm a journalist, and uh, what, <laughs> a, uh, is it Ken Walls? Where you sit is where you stand. So as a reporter, of course, I think there's way too many secrets. But let me speak now as an American. Um, he said portentously. Um, <laughs> when Daniel Ellsberg leaked the Pentagon Papers, I would say there was, a, there was a public interest in that disclosure because it disclosed how the United States was behind the coup of DM in many ways a pred- an important kind of fact that led to our escalation in Vietnam that American people were dying for in a compulsory draft. And at a certain point, if we are going to take the open society and our democratic compact seriously, then we need to say that even in matters of national security and foreign affairs, the American people have a right not to be treated like children. And that means they should know, I'm not an absolutist here, I'm not like Julian Assange, for God's sakes, but... I do think that we have lost touch with the important concept of free and democratic societies and that if we are going to have public participation in some way, even if it's just self-selected outside government experts who know enough to really comment on like, you know, the tribal societies of, you know, and structure of Yemen or something like that. You know, so I'm aware that there's a vast explosion of knowledge and not every individual is going to have enough information to make an informed judgment. But if we're going to take that seriously to a degree, that we have a public debate about these things, then you can't have whole swaths of our wars and our policies in secret. I mean, I agree with the principle that there have to be some state secrets, of course. The nuclear code should be secret. Um, You know, sources and methods, in my view, is sometimes an expression that can be abused by the intelligence community, but sure, in, in theory... I understand that, that, that there are certain things that need to be protected. The specific, you know, sort of, uh, I guess, you know, specific engineering specs for our spy satellites or our Identity. NSA platform. Identities of people who are selling I ad- Absolutely. Identities of people who are selling Which were revealed by, uh, well, by Bradley Manning. Yes. Well, actually, uh, yes, Bradley Manning to a degree, yes, he, he revealed people who were speaking, well, he, yes. didn't, he didn't reveal formal assets because he didn't have access to anything above secret, but he did reveal people who... Well, there are formal having, assets at the secret level who just informed directly to Unitra and the intelligence yeah. person. When I, by the way, yeah. tried to make this argument in another panel of people who were completely on the other side of this, I was, I was scoffed at. As, uh, well, that's because they side. don't understand what assets means. Right, yeah. I agree. Ask, ask those people if they'd be happy but of course, with, I, with their names being published as, as folks who had spoken with the Mafia. I made this point, and I agree. <laughs> but I broke my own rule. No, 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 I don't no, want to no, get too caught up but in the I, or no, no, But I, I agree. I mean, the, 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 I think, um, I mean, I think the, the better case of uh, where you went too far was the Philip Agee uh, disclosures of a generation ago, and he was a defector. And by the way, Agee was considered in at least the U.S. press not to be a whistleblower. I mean, with the exception of the Nation magazine, but. You know, with the exception of the left, I mean the far left, but most people wrote about AG as, yeah, he defected to Havana. That's what he did. And, um, you know, because the nature of what he revealed was so perilous. But I also would say this. Um, my uh, a f- 
my 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 friend and, and mentor, who's now not no longer with us, Christopher Hitchens, had a great rule about this that he told me about. Which is basically, if the people of Greece know who the station chief is, then the American it should not be a secret from the American people. Which is to say, if the people of Yemen know that the Americans are droning them, that should not be a secret. I find that to be something of an obscenity that the entire drone war in Yemen and Pakistan was a state secret. And when Dianne Feinstein mentioned the Shamsi Air Base, it was like this huge to-do, like, oh my well, God, I, I revealed think, this stuff. I think this is, a, this is largely a function of who's, who are the biggest tools of foreign policy that we're relying on right now. Since 9-11, yeah. uh, more than any other point in American history, we are relying on what we now call special operations forces as the uh, sharp right. end of the stick of our foreign policy across the entire yeah. globe. I mean, the number of countries... Uh, and this is all open source, that our special operations forces, as distinct right. from special forces, special operations forces are in right now, is mind-boggling. And uh, these people, everything they do is classified as top secret. That's just how they do business. And as a consequence, so much of our foreign policy, right. and not just tactics and operations, foreign policy is top secret as a yeah. consequence of this. Yeah, but and, and it's it, structural. It, Eli has an interesting observation that, that there are a large number of things going on in the world which are universally known covert actions. Right. Um, and actually, this is not a new phenomenon in the Obama administration. Um, uh, these uh, support to the Afghan Muj in the 1980s was a covert action. It was probably the least covert action in the entire history of the world. But a very successful world. one. And a very successful uh, one, too, uh, by the way. So and in fact, the public knew fairly decent amount of detail about it. Uh, I mean, we certainly learned tremendous yeah. amounts more since, but yeah. this was not just that we Tr knew fact Trying up. to sway the post-World War II Italian elections against the Communist Party was a covert action yeah. in which Italian Americans across America were enlisted in writing letters home. And that was also CIA, true. You know, so, so, to support to the Nicaraguan Contras, uh, a, a less uh, successful uh, activity, was also a covert action that anybody who, who cared uh, knew about. Right. Um, and I, I do agree that I think it's, it's it's quite obscene um, that that we are um, basically exempting government officials from having to discuss things which they know are happening, we know are happening, and people in the rest of the world know are happening. And I think that can be done in a lot of these cases where, you know, it's all you know where the fact is all out there. That can be done without getting into some of the details of how are the CIA officers or right. the or the the, the, the the soft guys actually doing their business in a tangible, specific sense. All right, David here. And let me add to that, that the secrecy over the drone campaign... I just want to point out, David is leaning forward on his knees, forward on his knees, <laughs> and, and waving his finger. He's very this serious about the point. going to make the argument for secrecy. He's about no, to make. So, <laughs> so the secrecy of the drone campaign, just to be you know both blunt and crude about it, makes us look like a bunch of assholes. Because <laughs> right? yeah. we're, we're droning people... And everyone knows it. And our position is, we're not going to say. I oh, mean, no, 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 wait a second. You know what? Now you're forcing the reporter, for the sake of the dialectic, to make the other side. <laughs> go, go for it, reporter. Okay. Which, because I, I mean, I made the original point. I just so like I the argument. No, but I feel like we need to make, there, there is one factor here. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, Bushmills. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Sorry. Um, Keep going. There is one important factor here, which is that... We have to have agreements with people like President Sala and General Kayani. And they know that these actions are going to be extremely unpopular in their countries. So there is a kind of diplomatic necessity to uh, 
the secrecy, at least before all of these things are blown by people like Bradley Manning and yeah, Edward Snowden and other reporters. Except for the fact that, that President Hadi has actually given the green light to the use of drones in Yemen. Now, I agree right. that in some situations that is justified based on the fact that there are secret treaties. Well, I'm not making a question about whether it's justified. I'm saying that oh, I, I don't think it was... I would, aff- I, I would affirmatively say that in cases where there's a secret agreement where you want to keep yeah. the embarrassment away from the other country, sure. secrecy is justified there. But in, in instances where everybody knows what you're doing uh, and you're saying, oh, well, we're not going to say, it means that A, you look dishonest, and B, you don't get to mount a defense which is one of the reasons that you know, a lot of things the U.S. have done is get, have gotten such a bad name, because our position is we're not going to say, rather than this is what we're doing, this is why. But I think transparency all right, can hold on, hold on, hold on, just, hold on, just one second. I'm only, I don't know that it's justified. I'm not getting into that, but I, I'm just saying that I think sometimes when you get into this conversation and with other reporters, we have a tendency to just sort of think that all these government officials are just a bunch of assholes. There are reasons for why they have to make this. They feel that it has to be secret because there's no other way. You, you couldn't have, you couldn't do it unless it, you, you, unless you made it a, a state secret. And that is, I mean, I, I think that I think I think that's. I've had this conversation with high-ranking military officials yeah, we're not, on this we're, question, and they, that's what they always say. I'm just bringing it up, right? I mean, for the sake of you know, so we have the other side. Well, look. At, at the end of the day, I mean, I think that there that this ac- actually is a somewhat pragmatic consideration. Right, uh, secrecy in this regard isn't always bad, but I think that that we are so secret in terms of our drone campaign and the way we're carrying out warfare that it affirmatively does make us look bad. And yeah. I, I I say that absolutely would sign my name to it, and I'm saying it here on the podcast. That the way that we're doing it now does affirmatively make us look bad. All right, but can I just come back and then I, I want to hear? Okay. Know, but I just want to say, you know, I, I I think it's an important point to make that. The secrecy itself creates this partnership with these dictatorships Come. to bring us kind of full circle. But our, we have like this oath of secrecy to basically kind of keep a secret, not only from our public. I mean, it, that's the whole thing that's so crazy. It's, it's not just the American people, who are get, but it's the people who are like, you know, hey, this you know, building just exploded in my village in Yemen. I wonder what that was. And you know you're supposed to you're supposed to you know what I mean you're supposed to that we we become I guess aiding and abetting the dictatorships in the region when we do this kind of thing and that that's I think another factor here. Well, yeah, I mean and that's just exactly yeah. the point I was I was going to make is um, it, it's not clear to me. Let me rephrase it. I think we ought to be way more conscious about making such agreements, um, which when we get to this you know situation. Um, basically, ultimately, make us look bad um, in the eyes of not only the American public uh, but the public in the region. Um, you know, I think that um, you know one of the reasons that we face many of the problems that we do today is um, that we were always willing to be the country that you know sort of soaked up the you know the costs uh, and, and the blame for a lot of things. I'm not sure that uh, you know that that um, it's in our long-term interest to um, to be the country that saves the reputation um, of uh, of undesirable dictators who are generally loathed well, by their people. I think I think Eli and Mark are raising an interesting question, and I'm just going to raise it, get a quick reaction from all of you, and then we're going to move on because we're uh, we're getting closer to the end. But um, w- what's driving what? 
is secrecy driving the policy, or is policy driving the secrecy? Are the incentives of the system and the need for the system to keep these secrets and the ability of the system to pursue its foreign policy and tactics and strategy secretly uh, enabling a certain foreign policy, or is it the foreign policy? Well, as Mark pointed out, and it's an important point, is that these are, we are in the realm of nomenclatura and Orwellian doublespeak, because it's technically a secret, but the president jokes about it at the you know White House Correspondence Center. So it's technically a secret. All these things are like this big black secret, and that, I think, creates an environment where if this is supposed to be a secret, and we all know that's bullshit, it's not really a secret, that's, then... That's Eli's phone, by the way. Sorry, that's my phone. That's I'm turning phone. it off. If it's supposed to be a secret, and it's really not a secret, then, you know, who cares if I decide if, if I publish a piece that talks about something that could very well be a secret, and then eventually, because everything's a secret... Nothing ends up being a secret, and the whole point is that in some... I mean, this is an argument in some ways, maybe against you know my, my own interest as a reporter, but if you really want to protect the serious secrets, then you have to do a much better job. You have to reform the whole system, because these things Absolutely. are not real secrets. Or don't, leak, or don't leak any of them to reporters as a matter of principle. Well, then... All right, well, the, but well, no, at no, that no, point... No, I'm saying, like, the really, big, happen, the, really, yeah. the really big... I mean, I think the system has sort of become dependent on yeah, the first strategic communications purposes of leaking actually rig, really big secrets that are against the national interest to leak. Right, and you don't have to do that. You don't I have mean, there, to do There that. are multiple other ways you could do that. For example, you can, uh, you can declassify things by essentially providing talking points on you know, information that you get without providing source, sources and methods. Mm-hmm. And there are multiple ways that you can address this problem and get information out there much more rapidly rather than the selective leaks that we have right now, which are highly problematic. Yeah, and, and, and there are all sorts of cases in which the U.S. government has done that with pretty darn sensitive stuff. Uh, KAL-007, we released yeah. uh, SIGINT intercepts of the Soviet uh, Air Defense Forces uh, with Colin Powell's uh, unfortunately quite misguided speech to the UN. Yeah. Nonetheless, there was lots of true in and of itself and very sensitive intelligence, including SIGINT and other things that were uh, released, um, you know, uh, in the, the, the full Monty and that. Um, we, the U.S. government actually does that fairly frequently. And oddly enough, the world doesn't seem to end. Well, so... But, we're about we're getting close to the end here, but I know before we finish, Mark has a really important question. Mark is not on Twitter. Ah. He is on the old, of the older, slightly older generation, not much older. Watch yourself. Slightly older generation. Good I, can, I can drink you all under the table, though. Well, I don't so. know about that. Watch you don't want to have a beer. I'm drinking liquor. Um, <laughs> it's funny because it's true. The um, so the uh, we have two people sitting across from Mark. Eli and David, and especially David, very active on Twitter. Uh, I like to think myself pretty active on Twitter. Yeah, but you're no, I mean, this guy's in the league. Can I just have 30 seconds to make my argument of why this is all silly? Which I don't. This is the Twitter is silly. Hashtag Twitter is silly. Twitter is silly. Okay, so I don't know, three years ago or so, because I didn't really understand what this Twitter thing was, I actually signed up and I gave myself an account. Um, just to sort of look around from you know from the point of view of being logged in and seeing what was what, um, I have never tweeted anything not once, and yet about every three or four months I get a notification that someone is following me, <laughs> which to me says that that large portions of this are just reflexive, you know, without 
uh, content, uh, intellectual, what was, emotional. What was their Twitter handle? Maybe they liked it. Uh, World War One PhD. Well, but, but surely the fact that I'd signed in, you know, created this years ago and never tweeted anything, might have given them a clue that this wasn't worth doing. I find that argument unpersuasive. <laughs> I figured you would. Does Twitter, is Twitter useful? Does Twitter matter? To be plugged into what's going on in national security, do you need to be on Twitter? I think Twitter is useful. Twitter does matter. And Twitter has its own host of problems in terms of how it influences us intellectually. Um, I think that, like to me, uh, there's a lot of people who I wouldn't have gotten to know were it not for Twitter. Um, there's a lot of information. Look, to me, it's, it's a very efficient means of uh, you know, getting a daily roundup every morning just by logging onto Twitter because I'm selective in terms of who I follow. Um, and I get a lot of expert analysis uh, from people who have certain spheres that uh, are you know, spheres that I don't necessarily devote as much time to. Like Gregory Johnson, who I mentioned before, is great on Yemen. Like getting his own take on the news is invaluable. Or Aaron Zellin, in terms of his take on jihadi media, invaluable. Uh, and I can name multiple others right off the top of my head who are really useful in terms of providing thinking beyond the headlines. I mean, that being said, I have a lot of structural critiques of Twitter. Um, I think that, that the rapid response way in which we now process and respond to news is highly problematic. Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of critical reading goes out the window, a lot of critical thinking goes out the window. And like one thing that, that I absolutely despise about Twitter is the way it makes people um, basically sink back uh, to juvenilia and respond to things as though they're part of a schoolyard. I mean, Twitter is the only medium in which people on principle argue to me that it's good to make fun of people who don't think like they do. Like, that's just something as adults that we generally don't do. I think people, uh, I think Twitter brings out the worst impulses in people. And, you know, in part, I think as people invest in this and let their worst impulses um, basically drive them. They're investing in the idea that the public sphere is going to be as bad or worse. Because if it improves, and like the norms that we now think of as norms don't persist, a lot of people are going to look really fucking bad. Uh, and frankly, I hope that's the case. I mean, I hope that we improve as opposed to continue to devolve. Uh, because... Can I just make a point? Yeah. We have, we have four people here, including myself, and if I would have guessed that there would be one person here that would curse twice on this family show, it would have been it would not have been David Gardenstein Ross. Twice. You uses a filthy language. You're you're uh, we've gotten your point. Eli Eli like, you just sit there because you're wash your mouth out later. Eli. I like Twitter. I like it for all of the juvenile reasons that David despises it. I like I like the Bon Mots. I like the uh, <laughs> I like the snark and the sarcasm. I like I, I, I enjoy it as a writer. I also understand it to be very indulgent and I don't know that you know it's I, I wouldn't argue that Twitter is you know adding to the public good, but there are moments when I have learned about people um, who have been very valuable to me, I have to say, uh, but it requires like anything else. I mean you you know you can't if you all you did was skim Twitter, I don't think you would have a very deep understanding of any particular topic. But it does. Devi's absolutely right. It does make you aware of individuals who are smart and know and have real substantive knowledge. And then you know, I, I do that old twentieth century thing, and I call them on the telephone, 
and I ask them a bunch of questions, or maybe I even meet them for a drink or a lunch. And, you know, that's always going to be the case. But I have to say that... As a journalist, have you ever gotten a source through Twitter? Uh, I have, actually. Okay. Um, but, I mean, it's hard to say that they're like a source. Because, you know, I think of a source as somebody who's in the government who, who tells me inside stuff. But in, in the sense that you can find experts and people who really know what they're talking about, who can, who can explain, you know, how a particular thing works and gives you a real kind of granular knowledge of something... Um, Twitter can be very useful, but I also think among journalists, you know, Machiavelli, um, the great man. I hope we all do. We all agree here that Machiavelli was a great man. I agree. Okay, we all agree. Yeah. Tough life. Had a great a tough didn't life. Write 140 characters at a time. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. <laughs> but he always short, had that. He had this great. Book. I mean, in fairness, you can't actually see his writing style. He might have stopped every 140 characters and then proceeded. I'm fairly sure that's not what happened. <laughs> go on, go on. But anyway, the great Machiavelli had, you know, in, uh, in his in his disquisition to the prince, says, there's always the crowd. Keep that in mind. And Twitter is the crowd for journalists. It is it is where reputations rise and fall, in, in instances in some ways. And in that respect, I find that more agreeable that I became a journalist in the mid-1990s in this town than the old way, which was, you know, kind of whispers at exclusive cocktail parties, and you wouldn't know that you were ever out. People would smile on your face. You know, now, you know, Twitter has the benefit of letting you know, uh, you know, what, what others think, and, and I think that that, in some ways, I prefer it, maybe. maybe. We're, we're going to close with a, with a thought from Mark, and then that's going to be it. All for right. Me. Yeah, and, and I would say also, as somebody who, who doesn't use Twitter, that I, I am very intrigued by another potential, not potential, another application of Twitter, quite different from the from the ones that that, that you two have mentioned, uh, and this is not something I know much about, but um, more um, sort of um, um, uh, uh, what's the word I'm after? Uh, automated analyses of Twitter to do things like looking at civil unrest, looking at natural disasters, yeah. to provide early warning for events that don't necessarily depend on something that's literally dialogue right. uh, related, and I think there is actually. Uh, some interesting potential applications there, which, oh, not, which I would like to know more. Not just potential. I mean, I know for a fact of a few companies that are Absolutely. making quite a lot of money off of doing just that. Yeah. Uh, but this has been another great session with some really great guests. Thank you guys for all doing this. Oh, thanks for having I had a great time. This is a lot of fun. We're going to have to do this again sometime to talk more about why Eli is wrong. Islam. Well, why <laughs> yeah. Mark thinks Eli is wrong, why Eli thinks Mark on political Islam. But uh, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.